Good morning. Well, we finished chapter 9 last time, and we are going to be in Luke chapter 10 today, a new chapter. This one should go quicker than chapter 9, so head over that way in your Bibles, if you will. Uh, and just as a reminder, because it's been a week, and I know how quickly we forget things, uh, where we left off, Jesus was telling his disciples, um, basically, that following him can be very difficult at times, very costly at times. Uh, and, and so that's where he leaves off. And, and this week, what we're going to be seeing in this passage is, is that the overarching theme is evangelism, right? This, uh, um, it, it, you know, telling other peoples about Christ, about Christ and the gospel. And so it might do us good uh, to, to remember the statement. You've probably heard it before. Many have said it. I know uh, John Piper is where I see it most often in the writings of his. Uh, and it's this statement that evangelism exists because worship does not. In other words, evangelism, that is telling people the good news of the gospel, is needed because only believers can truly worship God, and God is worthy of worship. Um, and so we're going to get into this passage. We're going to read it in, in a couple of different segments, little things to keep it fresh in our mind as we get to it like we've been uh, doing usually. But we're going to be getting in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 1, and we'll read the first four verses to start. Follow along. After this... The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag. No knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we have just read is your word. The red letters, the black letters, all of it is your word. And, and as we focus upon it together this morning, we ask that you would turn on the lights within our minds, within our hearts, so that we will rightly understand your word, so that we can be encouraged by your word, so that we can be challenged by your word, so that we can be changed by you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so Jesus, at various points, sent out his 12 disciples using words very similar to the ones that we find in our passage. And so they're probably really similar to or familiar to you. Uh, however, this is the only time that, that this actual event is recorded, where Jesus is sending out the 72 disciples. Um, and, and as we read this, I think two questions jump out at us right off the bat. And the first one is, why 72? What, what's significant about that number? Uh, and the second one, why send them out in pairs? What's significant about that? Now, Jesus doesn't answer it directly, but, but the number 72, as you start to look through Scripture, uh, most likely represents the number of nations that are listed in Genesis 10, right? After the fall and, and, and the people begin to spread out, uh, that's the number of nations, which in that case, that makes this... Uh, it makes this mission that he's sending out these disciples on actually a reversal of God's judgment upon the world, uh, in a sense, right? That just as the curse of sin spread out into the world, so now the gospel, the redemption of the world, begins to spread out from Christ. And so, uh, for as far as why there's pairs that are going out... Uh, again, Jesus doesn't explain it here explicitly for us, but it's likely because uh, the Jewish law actually required uh, that, that there be two witnesses to substantiate any sort of witness, right? 
And they're going out with a message to say this is coming uh, from the Messiah, from God, uh, you know. And so they have the two people to actually substantiate this, this witness, this statement that's going to be said. But it also reflects just the relational nature uh, of us as humanity, right? As, as made in the image of God. And you ever notice that in the, in the book of Acts, we went through that, it must have been a long time ago now, it doesn't seem that long ago, but when we went through the book of Acts, that the early church sent out missionaries almost universally uh, to evangelize, to plant new church, sent them out in pairs. You have Peter and John in Acts 3.1, you have Barnabas and Saul in Acts 13.2, Judas and Silas in Acts 13.2, uh, and uh, Silas in Acts 15:27, Paul and Silas in Acts 15:40, Timothy and Silas in Acts 17:14, and, and Timothy and Erastus in Acts 19:22. Over and over again, we're seeing this going out in pairs. I think we do well as the church, even today, to consider this this strategy as the way we send people out. I I know that when our family was considering coming out here, and ultimately did come out to plant the church here, one of the most encouraging things for us. Uh, was that we were not coming alone. Uh, when we learned that the, the Shanahan's and the Dunning families were also going to move out here and be a part of it, because we didn't know anyone here yet, right? Uh, we knew Christine and Tim on the internet, and that was it. And they could have been complete wackos for all we know. You're not complete. Um, <laughs> it was such an encouragement just to know that we weren't going out here completely alone. And, and so Jesus sends out these disciples, these, these ordinary Christians, right, in some regard, to all sorts of places. And, and we don't know the name of any of them. And I love that. It's so wonderful because these, these disciples aren't going out and being used by God to, to be famous, right? They're going out and, and being faithful to God or being used by God to be faithful to their Savior to, 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 because they love Jesus. Because they, they want to see other people receive what he has, what they have. Um, you see what Jesus says to them there in, in Luke chapter, or, or verse 2 right here. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Um, and, and you kind of wonder, you know, what, are they in a field? Are there harvesters around? What makes them think this? Um, it, it's, it gives me an opportunity to throw my wife under the bus here, actually. Our, our first year in, in Kansas, um, remember, we're coming from city type setting. In our first year in Kansas, we were in a bakery in Kansas City that advertised fresh cookies every day. And so Laura asked her, because it was late in the day, so what happens to those cookies once you close? I think she was hoping that she could eat them all, maybe. Um, but the lady said, we give them to the harvesters. And Laura, right off the bat, real excited, like, really? Like real farmers? You give them to the farmers? Um, and the lady explained her, no, no, not that kind of harvesters. But it's the name of a food pantry in Kansas City, uh, it is what it is there. And so not, not literal harvesters in that regard. Now, now the laborers that Jesus is talking about aren't literal harvesters either, right? Uh, you know, they, they aren't going to be picking any crop or, or weed or anything of that nature. Uh, Jesus is talking about souls in this sense. The world is a field. And each person in it is being represented or being uh, illustrated as, as a plant within that field. Either, either a fruit-bearing plant that is ripe because God, because God has prepared him or her to be gathered to himself by grace through faith. Or they're like a weed that is to be gathered and thrown into the fire. And we'll see a bit more on that a bit later. Now, to, to hear the fields are ripe for harvest, right? You could imagine 
that's a great encouragement to them, uh, to the 72, because they're about to go out there where they're going to be rejected uh, in many, many times, right? But to know that, that, you know, that God here is reminding them, listen, I have people out there who are ripe to be saved, who will believe, and this is the means by which it's going to be happening, right? What an encouragement that might be. That would be. This is a timeless truth, in fact. There, there are people... Whom, whom God has determined that he will bring to salvation that you know. And you bringing the gospel, sharing the gospel with people you know, it, it may be the way that God intends to save them. That, that should encourage us. I, I've told you before, when, when I was 15, right, a high school student, and I began going to the youth group, and I've told you the, the girls there were real pretty. That was the reason I kept coming back week after week. The guy could have been saying anything he wanted that was up front, you know, uh, and I would have still come back. But, uh, you know, I, 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 someone every single week, I, I learned about this later on, the whole thing was designed around the gospel. They preached the gospel every single week. More than six months, far more than six months, I, I sat there and I heard the gospel and I couldn't care less. Not even a little bit. Couldn't care less. But, but then suddenly God made me ripe for harvest. Suddenly the, the gospel was becoming believable and beautiful. Until ultimately it was absolutely believable and beautiful. See, the harvest is still plentiful today. And, and just as Jesus says here, the, the laborers are still few today. I mean, honestly, how, how many Christians are, are willing to even do the difficult labor of, of sowing the word into the lives of others or befriending people who, who don't know Jesus? How many like, actually desire to be missionaries or move beyond just that desire? I know in college there's a number that feel like doing it. And, you know, not many of us are, are willing even to, to risk our friendships with unbelievers by asking their views about God or by telling them about our love for Jesus. See, the fields Jesus was, was talking about here were, were, were the nearby towns, right? They understood the illustration. These are actually uh, gatherings of people is what he's talking about. And you, you look around our settings here, right? We've got a few places we would probably call, uh, you know, fields that are ripe for harvest. The, the, the campus of K-State would certainly be one of them. Uh, Manhattan Christian College, MATC, you know, uh, any other school or co-op that you might be part of. Fort Riley would certainly be a, a mission field that, that some of you have access to that the rest of us really don't. You're in a unique position if you're a soldier there that you have access to people that, that is really difficult for, for me or a number of us that are living in the city to even get access to. Your, your place of work is a, is a field, your neighborhood, your, your child's softball team, your robotics team, what other, other teams your children might be on. 1 Corinthians 3.6 says that Paul planted and Apollos watered. I'm talking about uh, aspects of the, of the ministry, right? Uh, and, and so I don't, I don't know. Maybe you'll be called to plant or to water, but you also might be called to harvest as well. To actually share the gospel, right? But regardless, we're, we're all called to cultivate in some way the, 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 the plants, rather the souls of, of those that we know. Now, I know many of us are afraid to talk about Jesus, right? And we usually have pretty good reasons. Uh, well, one, we're, we're either afraid, what are they going to think about me if I tell them about Jesus, right? Or, or the other one, which is probably a little more noble, but no more, uh, not a better excuse, really. This fear that if I start talking about Jesus, 
and I do it wrong, somehow I mess them up for the rest of eternity. I will ruin this somehow. And there's confidence in the gospel. You can't mess it up. You can't mess it up. That's something God's doing, not your doing. Okay? And who cares what they think about you? I mean, they, 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 Bill Bright, none of our crew people are here today. He's actually the guy. Oh, Sammy is here. Um, I believe he founded Crew. Is that right, Bill Bright? Uh, so Bill Bright was known for asking Christians this question. He'd say, what's the greatest thing that has ever happened to you in your entire life? And you start to think how you might answer that. And I know our, our answers might go a thousand different ways. But if we really get down to it, I believe most of us would answer the way he expects us to answer. That, that the greatest thing that has ever happened to me is knowing Jesus. Knowing my sins forgiven. Knowing I have a relationship with the Lord of Lords. And so Bill Bright would then follow up that question by asking, if that's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you, what's the greatest thing you can do for another person? And it puts it in perspective. I mean, you know the answer. Tell them about Jesus. Now, there's something else that Jesus says in our text that we should do here. It's easy to overlook it. You see it in verse 2 there. Because the harvest is plentiful, because the laborers are few, we are to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, this is convicting for most of us, I think. Am I the only one who hears this and thinks... A bit convicted by that. Um, but when we read the scriptures, right? We're reading the scriptures and we begin to realize, you know what? My practice doesn't match what I see here in, in the way that it should. It, it just, you realize that and it just feels gross, doesn't it? Um, listen, don't, don't let these moments beat you down like that. Imagine it more like this. When you go and you look in the mirror and you see there's some, some food stuck on your face and you're thinking... That's the food I had for breakfast, and it's 5 o'clock. Uh, I've had that food on my face all day long, right? There, there's that moment where you're like, you could just kind of beat yourself up for it. And, you know, why, you know I stink. Why do I have food on my face all day? What's wrong with me? Or you could take what you've just learned from the mirror and clean your face off and carry on, right? So if you're thinking, I, I've done a terrible job of evangelism or I've failed to even you know, care if my friends know Jesus one way or not, or if you're thinking, I never pray for God to raise up you know, missionaries or raise up laborers for, for the fields, uh, you know, I haven't done it in 10 years, then, then let this passage be like a mirror to you, right? You don't go on wallowing at where you failed and in your lack of obedience, but you wipe your face and, and we begin praying for God to raise up laborers for, for the harvest of souls. We, we begin to, to move in that direction. When we say laborers, yes, of course we mean missionaries, right? But not, not just missionaries. We, we, we think too small if we think that way. You know, pray for your, your brothers and sisters who are on mission actually every day as we go about our lives. Uh, remember, Jesus tells us to do this, in fact, because prayer is a powerful way that we can be about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 3 here. G Jesus says... I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of the wolves. Not the greatest motivational speech ever right there, is it? Not exactly what you want to hear from. Uh, so you're going out on this mission, and you're going to be like a lamb going into a pack of wolves. See you later. It's not what you want to hear, right? Like, wolves, Jesus? You, you kind of want them to add, Jesus, you know wolves. They, they usually eat lambs. Are you aware of how wolves work? He knows. 
That, that's the whole point of the statement. Jesus has already always been so incredibly straightforward about the risk of our lives and our livelihood and our safety when, when we begin to follow Jesus, right? And, and, he's, and he knows that the harvest is going to be plentiful, but he also knows that, 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 that many are not going to believe in Jesus. Many are not going to respond well. Many will view the kingdom of God as a threat to their way of life, to their values, to all sorts of other things that they hold incredibly important. You see, worldly speaking, it is not always safe to be a disciple of Jesus. Eternally speaking, it is. Eternally speaking, there's nothing, nothing safer than to be a follower of Christ. But when we live in this world, it's not always safe. This is still true today. You see, wherever Christians confront the powers of darkness, whatever they might be, secularism, communism, humanism, paganism, atheism, Islam, you know, whatever Christians are, are, are confront, wherever Christians are confronting false gods, there will be wolves who seek to do us harm because of that. Either harm to our life and our safety, or, or as is often more the case in our country, you know this, right? It's more about our, our careers, our reputation. It's going to cost us somewhere around there. Verse 4 here seems odd. It seems, well, especially odd considering this passage. Um, don't greet anybody while traveling. Right? I know coming from the south when we went up north, that was one of the things we found was that people didn't greet people. Uh, I think our first stop was Louisville, which is not exactly north. But uh, just saying hi to someone, they wouldn't say hi. You see? Um, in the South, we greet everybody. This, this would be a tough thing. Uh, see, the idea here, though, is that, that their greetings weren't like ours. It wasn't like just saying hi as you pass someone. It wasn't telling them to be you know, rude in that regard. He, it was more about the, the fact that in this time, a greeting was actually a pretty elaborate thing. And, and this is to draw attention to the fact that in, in this particular situation, the mission, the message is urgent. Go straight to where you need to go. Jesus also has something odd to say about packing here, right? And I, I know some of you can't imagine traveling anywhere without being prepared for a dozen scenarios. And the idea of only having the sandals on your feet is terrifying to you. This might be the deal breaker moment. Um, you know, but he's saying don't carry extra sandals or, or a money bag or a knapsack. Or, or, you know, that's like a backpack basically. And, and, and you wonder, well, what's the point of these rules? Well, well first of all, so that they can... Trust that God would provide for their needs. Absolutely. But, but also so that they'll be content with whatever God does indeed provide for them. Now I, I know they, 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 got to watch, they got to watch God work in amazing ways because they absolutely had to depend on God to depend, or, uh, in these in this moments. And, and that's going to encourage and grow their faith as, as they're sharing it. But, but here's another reason. It's also because the gospel is relational. It is. Listen to how David Gooding explains it. He says, If the disciples had enough money to support themselves, then letting them hire a room in a hotel would be a simple commercial transaction, carrying no spiritual implication. But if the people in the towns were faced with penniless, destitute men claiming to be the Messiah's own ambassadors, they would be forced to decide whether they would receive and entertain them as such or reject them outright. And so it, it sets up this scenario that the Lord wants to put them into. Now, let's move on to our, our second section where we're going to read uh, starting in verse 5 here. It goes on. This is Jesus' commandments again or Jesus' statement again. He says, Whatever house you enter, <clears throat> first say... Peace be to this house. 
And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You see, Jesus sends them out to find a certain type of person who's here called a son of peace. Uh, you know, peace in, in the Hebrew, the Jewish language, uh, you've likely heard it, shalom. It, it has far richer undertones than our English understanding of it because we tend to think of peace like if you're not fighting, you're at peace, right? We have a really kind of pathetic view of peace. Now, shalom's not merely the absence of conflict, but, but also this sense of positive blessing, or, or in, in this case, it's someone who is at peace with God through Christ, who is, or, who, or who is receptive to hear and believe the gospel. Someone who's going to see these disciples who come and recognize them as being sent from God, from the Messiah. And, and Jesus says, if they are not a person of peace, then the message of peace is, peace is going to return back to them, right? It's like a, an email that bounces back, right? It didn't actually get received anywhere. And, and this... If this happens, presumably they're to move on until they find a house that will. Now, Jesus goes on to say it's, it's right for the disciples to be provided for by, by those they're ministering to as they labor and, and do his work. And then he reminds them uh, of this odd thing. Eat whatever's given to you. It seems like a given, right? Um, I think we read this sometimes in our American context and think it's about whether they like the food, right? We're so obsessed with our preferences, uh, you know, or this fear that maybe they're going to be like, you know what, I smell the neighbors cooking burgers. We should have stayed there. Why would we stay here? Uh, you know, some sort of dissatisfaction. That, that's not the issue here. here. Here's the issue. You've got these 72 disciples that are being sent out. Are these Gentiles or, or, or Jewish people at this point? They're Jewish people. Jewish men. Um, and they're in an overwhelmingly or at least somewhat Gentile land. And so some of them are going to find themselves being served food by Gentiles, which means it's going to go, it's going to be food that was forbidden under the Jewish dietary laws. And so someone might say, you know what, we're glad you're here. Here's some pork. Have a nice dinner. And, and the Jewish people, these, these disciples are going to be thinking, I can't eat that. Uh, and, and so Jesus is putting them at ease here, telling them, don't get hung up on that. Just eat this. You know, it's something that's going to happen much, down, much later down the road for, for, for all of them. But, but at this point, he's telling them, just, just accept their hospitality. And then Jesus, you know, commands them to heal the sick there and to proclaim the gospel there. It's, it's this ministry that includes both a, uh, you know, word and deed or a message, right? But, but also it includes motion to care for the people's physical well-being as well. Now, Philip Ryken explains this, you know, the miraculous healings that we see here, uh, how they relate to ministry today. He says this, In those days, they experienced the truth of the gospel through the message of the gospel, which was confirmed by miracles of healing. Today, people experience the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel, which is confirmed by the loving care of the people who preach it. And, and by people who preach it, we, we don't mean exclusively in a formal setting like we have here, um, but, but in the sense, in the general sense of anyone who tells another person who Jesus is, how to trust in him, how to believe the gospel, you know, how to find salvation from their sin in Christ. And, and so, um, so <clears throat> here we read then that, that 72 people are, are to tell them, right, their host, uh, the kingdom of God has come near to you. 
Now that's a summary statement that's being said there. Don't, don't picture him walking in and just literally, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. It's, it's not just wandering around saying that over and over. You know, what they're doing is, is they're telling these people in any number of ways that the promised Messiah is here and his name is Jesus. Right? They're going to be explaining to them that the rule of God in the hearts of his people, the forgiveness of sin, the eternal redemption, that, that all of this has arrived in the, in the person and in the soon-to-be-finished work of Jesus Christ. And so then many are going to receive the message, but Jesus also gives an explanation to them what to do for those who reject the message. Again, follow along verse 10 here. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of Sodom than for that town. Now, this sounds incredibly dramatic, what he's asking them to do. And it is incredibly dramatic on purpose. Um, because the people need to know that, that like the mockers in, in Noah's day, they have rejected their only means of salvation from the judgment that is certain to come. And so the disciples are, are to go into the public space, right? And to pronounce this judgment on their heads for rejecting the Messiah through the messengers that Jesus sends. And Jesus then makes this comparison between how harshly, right, the, the infamous city, you know, evil city of Sodom is going to be punished. And the greater judgment that is going to be brought upon the people in these towns because they have rejected the Messiah. Now we don't get the details here, but it's clear there is some degrees of punishments on the judgment day. We see that also in the last section that we're going to look at here in a moment. Uh, let's just go ahead and read it, starting in verse 13. Uh, Jesus goes on. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the, in, the, in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me <clears throat> rejects him who sent me. Now we're going to see this degrees of judgment again in chapter 12. Um, for, for now, I, I, I just know this. The, the, the point here is that while... Tyre and Sidon were, were famous for evil, right? They, they, they were famous for evil, and, and yet, while they are going to receive punishment, right? Some discipline for that, some punishment for that. What, what's worse, he's saying, than even their evil deeds is this act of rejecting the Messiah, the glorious Son of God that has been sent. And especially so because Jesus has done miracles in the towns that are listed here, all of them. And, and, and by, you know, they were impressed by Jesus. We know that when we've seen the stories, they, they flock to him. They want to see what's going on. They want to see the benefits of the miracles he's doing. And, and yet they never put their faith in him. I mean, understand the heart of what's saying here. He, he's saying that re rejecting Jesus, reject, rejecting the gospel, it, it's not just sad. It is morally sinful. But it's also... Absolutely heartbreaking. 
See, when Jesus says woe to you there in verse 13, it's, it's not the harsh, you know, harsh vengeance kind of statement that a, a, you know, some villain in a movie might say, but it's a deep sorrow of, of one who knows the terrible future that their rejection is going to lead to. Christian, do you, do you understand what Jesus is talking about? It's, it's not just faceless towns he's talking about. He's, he's talking about the inhabitants of these cities, right? Men and women with maybe families, maybe children, with jobs to do, worries they're concerned about, not unlike our own world, our own culture. He's saying that they're going to face a terrible judgment before God. And and this whole topic is incredibly uncomfortable for us in the 21st century. Because no one really wants to talk about hell. No one really wants to talk about eternal punishment, right? We, we almost always present Jesus as just the wonderful things that will happen. We rarely even talk about this. But, you know, Jesus does. Jesus talks about it often. And he's saying that the people who reject the hope of the gospel do so at their own eternal peril. Now, I, I remember when I was a 15-year-old believer, right? A number of those stories are coming into the sermon today. Uh, I, I had the friend Aaron who talked to me. And this was, um, golly, the, the Houston Rockets. Michael Jordan had retired for two years. And so the Houston Rockets were going to win the championship during while well, he played baseball. Uh, anyway, that's what's going on in the house. I can remember sitting out in this car. We were arriving at this event. And, and he was telling me about Jesus. And I can remember at one point asking him, so what happens to me if I don't? as he put it, if I don't receive Jesus. And I, and I remember him saying, and this is me as an unbeliever, you know, hearing this. He said, he said I, I'd received the wrath of God. I didn't quite know what that meant. Um, and then I'd go to hell. And I knew what that meant. And, and, and I imagine it was incredibly hard for him to say that to me, right? These are not the parts we like to say. But, but it was true. And, and honestly, because God was at work in my heart already, and I, and I say that, uh, you know, it's important to understand that because if God had not been work, work in my heart and someone said this to me, I, I would have received it very differently, I think. But, but because God had been working my heart, um, it, it really conveyed to me just the sense of weight to this message. That he understood, like, my, my eternity, that's what we're talking about here. It's not a light thing that we were discussing as a basketball game was going on inside. Now, you see, believe in Jesus and be saved. That's what it's getting at. Believe in Jesus and be saved. Reject Jesus and be found guilty before a holy God. That's the message they're going out with. It's the message we still carry into the world today. Okay, last thing to see here is in verse 16 there. Jesus is talking to these disciples who will carry his message, and he says this, the one... Who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. It's a whole chain of events you see here. Um, now, first of all, in the days of, of kingdoms, we don't actually function in many kingdom-like structures anymore, but in the days of kingdoms, when someone uh, rejected an official messenger who was sent from the king, right, it was like rejecting the king to his face. It was the same exact response, like a discipline would come from that or a response from the king. Now, Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, makes clear that anyone who rejects his disciples sharing the gospel ultimately reject Jesus himself. Puts a lot of weight on that message. 
Jesus then equates himself with God the Father, rightly so, so that the whole connection goes like this. It's saying, if someone rejects a disciple of Jesus who is sharing the message of Jesus, the gospel, they also reject Jesus. And if they reject Jesus, they also reject God the Father as well. And listen, there are, there are many roads to Rome, the city in Italy. But, but there is only one way that leads to God, that leads to peace with God, that leads to the kingdom of God, and that road is Jesus. Jesus is the way. No one's more clear about that than Jesus himself. Now, someone told me over, week, uh, over lunch this week, um, I don't know if you've caught on to this in Luke yet. If you've read all the Gospels, you, you probably know this in some regard, right? Compared to Matthew and Mark and, and John, Luke is the weird Gospel. All the weirdest stories are in, are in Luke, right? And, and I thought it was interesting that he said this because then unprovoked, one of my children this week was telling me, Dad, Luke's kind of weird. It's, it's hard to understand at times. And, uh, and as they were saying this, I was thinking, yeah, I know I, I have to preach it every week. It is a little weird. Um, it is. It just is. And the more we accept that, the, the better, right? It's weird. And, and in all of its weirdness, it's really wonderful, right? And, and, and you've got to come around and ask this question, you know, what, what do we learn from this passage today? We, we know what it means in the moment, right? As those 72 go out and share the gospel and, in the moment, right? But what's it mean for us today? This, this passage certainly calls us to pray for God to raise up laborers to go into the fields for harvest. That, that needs to be a regular part of our prayer life. Your prayer life, my prayer life. Missionaries, campus pastors, church planters, right? But, but also like bold accountants, right? Or... Uh, whatever other jobs and interactions we might have and so on. Uh, you, you might even, without knowing it, be, be praying for yourself, in fact. This passage also calls us to consider what, what hospitality looks like in our life, right? We, we're seeing it from the disciples' perspective, but what about the other side? You know, how do we welcome both Christians and, and non-Christians is, is a question to always be asking yourself. It, it means you might be considering how you might live as a, a son of peace, as it's listed here, right? By, by offering assistance to, uh, you know, to, to gospel laborers, whether that's financial or some other means as well. Uh, finally, if, if you're a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, then you've received the message of the King. The eternal sovereign, universal king. And that message, right, that calls us to put our hope in Jesus, if that's true, then, then that's the greatest thing that will ever happen in your life. And also, you not only need to share that message, which is how we tend to think of it, but we need to really stop thinking that way because it's not just that we need to share that message, we get to share that message with others. And it doesn't have to be everyone you know before the sun sets today. Don't panic. No one's asking you just to go and, you know, Uncle Jim, I'll tell you about Jesus. You can. No one's asking you to do that, right? Uh, but, but think about it. Who do you want to tell about Jesus? Can you even answer that question right now? Like I've thought about the people I know, my family, my friends, my neighbors, the guy that annoys me down the street, whoever it might be. Who do you want to tell about Jesus because they need to know about Jesus? And just start praying for them. Start praying for them. Um, another way we can prepare for this is, is maybe practice telling a, a friend about Jesus. Right? It's awkward. It's weird. One of our biggest fears is how do I enter into this conversation? Just practice it. 
So you can get comfortable telling someone about Jesus. The other person can just pretend to be something else. Like, you know, learn this. That's the way we learn so many other things in life. Learn to talk about Jesus. And finally, church, I want you to understand, again, you have the most powerful, most important message in the entire world, the history of the world. And so how will you labor to share it with others? For their blessing and so that God gets the worship that he's worthy of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to know what it looks like to continue the mission. To continue to share the gospel knowing that some will receive it as you have enlightened their hearts to believe your message. But also knowing that others will reject you, Jesus. And even though it might feel like they reject us, Lord, they reject you. Oh Lord, we ask that you would give us opportunity to see you transform people we know from your enemies to your children, from objects of wrath to objects of delight. Lord, we know what it means to, to be forgiven, to walk through life without the weight of the guilt of our sin. Lord, we long for, for others that we know and care about to have this as well. So give us a love for for you that overflows into a love for our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.